This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. The ruling royal family in Saudi Arabia is immensely wealthy, mainly because the state has vast reserves of oil. But who actually owns this oil? Saudi Arabia is not a democracy. Should we be buying oil off the Saudis while it's still run by the House of Saud? Leif Wenar of King's College London doesn't think so. Leif Wenar, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thanks very much. The topic we're going to focus on is trade and tyranny. Could you just explain what connects those two? You might not think of it, but when we do our everyday shopping, we may be putting money into the pockets of some of the most merciless men in the world. When we buy gas or newspapers, house paint or nail polish, game stations or cell phones, the money we spend may be going back to fund tyranny and violence in some of the most wretched places in the world. So presumably that's not just on an individual level, we're talking also about governments buying resources on a larger scale too. That's right. We're not talking about an aberration in how the world works. We're talking about the rules that run the world that are putting us into business with these bad men overseas and which empowers those bad men not only to be oppressive and violent in their own countries, but to act in ways that end up being very bad for us too. Perhaps it'd be easiest if you gave a specific example of this. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Putin, Iran, the genocide in Darfur, chaos in Libya, Saudi Arabia, spreading Salafism around the world. All of these things are happening in states that have oil. Because of the rules that run the world, our money goes to coercive and violent actors in countries like those. We spend our money for oil and other natural resources. They use our money for oppression and violence and to spread their ideology worldwide. So you spoke about the rules that run the world. What are these rules? And here's a funny thing. If there were an oil truck outside right now and some armed men took over that oil truck by force, no one thinks that the law should give bystanders the right to buy the oil from those armed men. But when Gaddafi took over Libya in a coup, and then when rebels later took over the oil wells from Gaddafi, our laws gave us the legal right to buy Libya's oil from the men with the guns. Our law for the resources of other countries is just the law might makes right. Whoever can seize it with force, keep it by power, will buy the resources from them. So when you say our law, are we talking about British law? Are we talking about American law? Might makes right is the law of every country for the resources of other countries. This is an ancient, bad law, and we just don't notice it because it's the way that the world has worked 
our whole lives, and in fact, as far back in history as we can see. This bad old rule is actually a remnant of archaic legal system that's been reformed in many other areas. We just haven't reformed it for resource trade yet. So this principle, might makes right, obviously in very primitive situations, there's nothing much you can do about it, but we are in a situation where there are possible sanctions, there are international regulations. Surely it can't hold wholesale across every aspect of human life that might makes right. 300 years ago, might makes right was the primary rule for all of international relations. Let me give you some examples. 300 years ago, might makes right was our rule for human beings. Our rule for Africans was whoever can control them by force will buy those human beings from them. And might made right in other areas too. So colonialism, if empire could keep coercive control over a foreign people, the empire got the internationally recognized legal right to rule over those people. Apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide, in all of these instances, in days past, the law was might made right. Whoever had the most coercive power would have the legal right to get their way. Now the encouraging thing is that in all the domains I just mentioned, might makes right has been abolished. And these have been some of the greatest landmarks in human history. Over 300 years, through epic struggles, we have abolished might makes right. The slave trade is now illegal. Colonialism is illegal. Territorial conquest is a violation of international law. Apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide, all of these instances of might makes right are now illegal in international law. Might makes right for natural resources is one of the few remnants of that bad old regime that used to hold in international affairs. We've just been talking about oil so far, but does your argument apply to other resources as well? Might makes right now applies to all natural resources in foreign countries. It's not just oil, it's also minerals and gems. Things that have a very high value relative to their weight and that can be just torn out of the ground with either slave labor or a little bit of foreign labor. As long as someone can put a fence around it and get the stuff out of the ground, they will get a huge legal revenue stream from abroad. So, for example, you might have seen the Leonardo DiCaprio film Blood Diamonds, which showed bloody rebels in Sierra Leone amputating the limbs of terrified villagers around them to scare them away from Sierra Leone's rich diamond fields. That was an instance of might made right, which sent those blood diamonds to us, which people still wear in their earrings and their engagement rings. Today, what's been called the world's worst war in the Congo may have a death toll that's reaching Holocaust levels as bloody militias mine the minerals that go into our cell phones and laptops and game stations and get our money in return. So might makes right applies to oil, minerals, and gems. And we've got to get out of business with 
those men of blood in all of these cases. If you're right about what's going on in the world, how could governments particularly have been so blind or so misled as to get into this situation where they play the game of might makes right? Nigel, it's interesting. Here we are in London in the 21st century, and we take might makes right for resources for granted. In 1787, in London, when 12 Quakers vowed to each other that they would work to end the legal slave trade, almost everyone in the British elite was wrapped up in the slave trade. The mayor of London had been one of the largest slave owners of the time. The Church of England had gigantic plantations in the Caribbean. The slave trade gave England its first millionaire, and banks like Lloyd's and Barclays were lending money to finance slave ships and slave plantations. Everybody took might makes right for human beings for granted, and it was the campaigners backed by the heroic efforts of the people of England that just insisted that this terrible practice be stopped and that they get out of business with the slave trade. Now, it's easy for a philosopher to say, the world is awful, we need to change it. But how on earth can we change a system that relies so heavily on corrupt and tyrannical people holding important natural resources as something which they can trade in? Imagine being an idealistic young reformer, say, 90 years ago, and going to the cold marble halls of power in London or Paris or Amsterdam and telling a member of the establishment that colonial rule simply had to end. Imagine the reception. To go back to the slave trade example that I mentioned before, the best study that we have now says that in order to get out of the slave trade business, the British people gave up 2% of economic growth every year for 60 years. Imagine going to the prime minister now and saying you have a policy that would require giving up almost 2% of GDP growth every year for the next 60 years. Getting ourselves out of business with the men of blood who are selling natural resources won't be that expensive, and it won't take that long, but it will take some effort. I'm sure it'll take effort, but practically, what is the first step? The great news about this is the world is already set up for success. Everybody already talks as if we use a better rule than might makes right. World leaders already talk a different language. Treaties have already been signed with a better basis for natural resource trade, which is one of the deepest principles of political philosophy that we believe already. A country belongs to its people. It's the people, not power, who have the ultimate right to decide what should happen with the land, including its natural resources. Everybody already talks as if the oil belongs to the people. The world is already set up for us to move to that new basis for natural resource trade. We just have to align our laws with our beliefs. But in some of the cases of tyrants that you've mentioned, these are people from that country who have taken control as a result of civil war or whatever. The people who've usurped power are very much of the people. 
Right, so that's a great question. What would it really mean to make our principles practical and to take seriously our conviction that a country belongs to its people? How do we know when the people, that is all the citizens, actually could control the resources of their own country? Well, here we have to do a bit of political philosophy. Here's four simple tests for whether the people of a country could possibly be controlling their resources. First, can the people of the country find out what's happening to their resources? Can they find out who's selling off the resources and who's getting the money? Second, can citizens talk to each other about what's happening to their resources without fearing disappearance, imprisonment, or death? Third, can citizens peacefully protest what's being done with their resources, again, without fearing disappearance, imprisonment, or death? And last, if a majority of citizens strongly disagree with what the regime is doing with their resources, will the regime's policies change within a reasonable time? If those four conditions aren't met, then the people could not possibly be controlling their resources, and since those resources ultimately belong to them, when the regime sells off their resources, those resources are literally stolen from the people. So you've given four criteria. Does the country have to meet all four of those for it to be one in which the people have some kind of say in what happens to the natural resources? That's right. The people have to be able to find out what's happening to the resources, talk about that with each other, be able to protest what's happening, and their protest has to be effective. It's the same kind of criteria that you find in the philosophical literature that was later turned into our laws about, for example, consenting to medical procedures. Do you understand what's going on? Can you think about it? And if you disagree, will it not happen? That's exactly the kind of theory we need here for whether a people can control the resources of their country. So it's not just a matter of only trading with democracies. That's right, and that's a really important point. In order to get out of business with these bad actors abroad, we only have to change our own laws enforced on our own soil about who we do business with, who we have a right to buy resources. That's up to us. That change of laws has no implications for who we recognize as ruling foreign countries. So, for example, when we change our laws, better rules for natural resources. We'll say, who rules in Saudi Arabia is none of our business, but right now that regime is entirely unaccountable to its people, so that regime qualifies for none of our business. Now, lots of the resources that you've mentioned don't carry a marker which says exactly where they originated from. And I can imagine that in the world where some countries operate with the kind of principles that you've suggested, there will still be a flow of this stuff out of the despicable countries into the system. We're still going to end up with oil from Libya or wherever it might be that you don't approve of. And so some politicians might say, this is high moral talk, but actually the practicalities of business mean we might as well go direct to the source and get a better price. It's so interesting, Nigel, because exactly that thing was said about diamonds when it was learned that diamonds were fueling all this violence in Africa, good people came up with a registration scheme that would get us to stop importing blood diamonds. For the last decade and more, 
there's been something called the Kimberley process in place, which now does make it illegal to buy diamonds unless they've been bagged and tagged and certified by the government of the country as not being in control of rebels. As it happens, oil is a lot easier to trace than diamonds. And if I can just say, think about not oil, but wine. You probably not only know the country that your wine comes from, you probably know the hillside it was grown on. Oil is big and it's heavy and it goes on large tankers which are tracked by satellites. If we want to stop the flow of blood oil into our own countries, we can certainly do it. Do you think there's something distinctive that you bring to this problem as a philosopher? Because some people might listen to this and say, well, this is a, a straight political problem. It's not really the realm of philosophy. Big picture. Philosophers see the big picture. That is what we've always done. Let me tell you what I said to my students at the beginning of the course when I was teaching Political Philosophy 101 at Princeton last time. I said to the students, look at the philosophers who are on your reading list for this course. Thomas Hobbes had to flee London for fear of his life because of the political philosophy that he was writing. John Locke had to flee this country for fear of his life because of the political philosophy he was writing. Rousseau wrote a constitution for Poland. John Stuart Mill was a member of parliament. They chased Marx from Germany to France and from France to London, and they still followed him around with the secret police when he got here. The philosophers who have made a difference in our tradition were deeply engaged in the political issues of their day, and they just had to go up a level of abstraction so they could try to find some solutions for the issues that were really concerning everyday people on the ground. The political philosophy that's mattered most in the West has started on the ground and gone upwards and then come back down. That's the tradition that I hope we can continue to work in. Leif Buenar, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.